Pray with me now. God and Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would speak through it by your Holy Spirit to grasp and transform our hearts. Although we are sinners, I pray that we would be molded by it to look more like Jesus. Although I am a sinner, I pray that I would speak it clearly and truly. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We are often a lot more selfish than we like to admit. We can be deeply selfish creatures, but we often dress it up to try to hide that selfishness. Like I was thinking about, I was talking to a friend recently, and they don't live around here. This isn't a story from around here, but they live in this city, and they're on the advisory board for the schools there, and the schools are trying to figure out what to do about reopening with COVID. And in this school system, there's a big group of very wealthy parents, and then there's a decent-sized group of very poor parents whose kids all go to this school together. And my friend was telling me, they were at this meeting, and they it was mostly the wealthy parents that came to kind of like share their thoughts and give feedback about opening plans in the fall. And they were very adamant that school had to reopen in the fall and that it had to reopen five days a week, full time, uh, even even with all the coronavirus stuff going on. And my friend said that what, what struck them was that you would hear the parents talking about why, and all they talked about was the poor families. They would say, well, we have these poor kids in our school system, and we just want them to get a good education, and we have these poor kids in our school system, and we need to give their parents a break from them, and we have these poor families in our school system, and they, they need to work, and they need child care for their kids. And my friend said as they sat there listening to that, they're just like, I know you guys, and I know that really those are your concerns, that that you're worried about your kids' education, that you feel like you need a break for your kids, that that you need childcare because you you both work and you need someone to watch your kids, but you're not talking about it, acknowledging that you're the one who cares about this. You're trying to dress it up as if it's about somebody else. And I told that story not so we can judge those people or to pass any specific judgment on them, but just to say that that was just the most recent in a long line of examples that I could think of that reflects something true about all of our hearts. We are often selfish, and we often lie about it to others and even to ourselves, where we really believe these things we say. We come up with these stories and reasons to to dress up and hide our selfishness. And I think that that can creep into how we approach Christianity as well. That is what we're going to be discussing this morning. Christianity is a religion that is opposed, in a real sense, to our selfishness. It calls us to die to ourselves, to lay our interests down in the service of others, but it too easily becomes just another mask that we can put on our own self-interest. And I think we're going to see that in this story, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. So so file that reality away, the reality of our selfishness. We're going to then walk through this story, and then by the end of it, we're going to see how that ties into that reality and talk about how we deal with it. So let's walk through the story. Just to remind you, if you weren't with us last week, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist and gone out into the wilderness and been tempted by the devil, and now he's come back into Galilee, which is northern Israel, to start his ministry. Pick up in verse 14. It says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. 
So setting the stage for the story we're about to read, Jesus has started his ministry in Galilee. He still has a lot of ministry left to do, but he has been preaching the word. As we'll see from the story, he's been doing miracles and healing people and showing these signs. He's doing the stuff that he became known for, and a report is spreading all through the land about Jesus and what he's doing. And then, in our story, Jesus comes home. In verse 16, it says, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So every Sabbath, observant Jews would gather in the synagogues, just like we gather on Sundays, and they would worship the Lord together, and they would hear from his word and be taught about it. And it says that this was Jesus's custom, which is worth saying, because I don't know that we actually meditate on that, but like, Luke is saying here that like Jesus faithfully gathered with God's people in worship every week. That is a part of his habit as he traveled around. But in the synagogue, if you had a visiting teacher, what you would do is you would often ask them to read the scriptures and share some teaching. And um, that seems to be what is happening here with Jesus. So this text does not say specifically that he was asked, but we should probably assume he's not suddenly standing up and like, hey guys, somebody give me a scroll. But rather, you know, he, the golden boy has come home and the people here are interested to kind of see what he's got and to hear what he has to say as they've been hearing reports from other parts of Galilee. So Jesus is given the scroll of Isaiah and he opens and reads this part of it from Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads this great promise of restoration. Isaiah speaks these words to Israel as they are in exile and slavery, and he's coming to them and saying, you will be restored. There is good news for the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, justice for the oppressed, freedom for the captives. The Lord's favor is coming, Isaiah says. Jesus reads that promise, and then you can almost feel the tension in the room. In verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now here you would stand up when you were reading God's word in this culture, and then you would sit down when you were about to preach. But you can feel everyone looking at him. What's he going to say? Verse 21, And Jesus began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when it says Jesus began to say this, what that probably means is that Luke is summarizing this sermon that Jesus gave. It isn't that he only said one sentence and everyone was impressed, but rather this is Luke's way of summarizing what Jesus declares to the people. And what he is declaring is that right now, today, this hope of Isaiah, this scripture has been fulfilled. What the prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years in the past is somehow now coming true in Jesus. And people initially seemed to like this message. Uh, it says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now, the, the language behind that English translation is maybe a little more ambiguous and maybe it communicates a little bit of skepticism, but on the whole, people seem to like this sermon. It's an exciting message and they're on board with the Lord's favor arriving, but then they also do seem to be very skeptical. And this is the point where the story seems to shift. 
Jesus comes and they're eager to hear him and he preaches and they're excited by what he says. But then we pick up and it says, first of all, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? And given what comes next, this is probably a question of challenge or doubt. That makes sense then. If we read verse 23, and it, Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So when they ask, aren't you Joseph's son? What they probably mean is something like, prove it. This is an audacious claim. We know who your daddy is. We want proof. And in particular, we want you to do the signs and wonders, the miracles and healings that we heard about in Capernaum. Let's do those things for us. And this is where I think that hidden selfishness creeps in to the story. What is going on in the hearts of these people? Are they seeking the Lord? Are they seeking his word? Are they interested in the fact that the Messiah might be here? Not so much. What they're after is the stuff that Jesus has done for these other people, the stuff that they're hoping Jesus would do for them. They want Jesus to put on a show for them so that they can be entertained. They want Jesus to fix their immediate problems, to heal people, cast out evil spirits. That's what they're looking for. And we might ask what's wrong with that, because on one level, it's understandable that these people want to see Jesus do these things. But to see what's wrong, look at Jesus's response. First, Jesus quotes this proverb that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he proceeds to tell a pair of stories from the Old Testament. If you start in verse 25, he says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. So during the prophet Elijah's work, God was judging Israel for its sins, and he caused this great doubt, drought to come on the land for years. And during this time, God leads, uh, God leads the prophet to live in the house of this widow, like it says, living in Zarephath in the land of Sidon, which the big thing to understand about that means not in Israel. In fact, he, he leaves Israel and goes and lives with this woman in a country that's one of the enemies of Israel. And while he's there, he miraculously provides for this widow. He, he causes it so that her oil jar and her bag of flour does never run out of food. And when her son dies, he prays and the Lord brings him back from the dead. And these remarkable miracles occur. But again, Jesus' point is this is not for Israel, but it happened for a Gentile. Jesus adds another story about Elijah, the prodigy, Elisha, the protege of Elijah. Um, and he says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So Elisha is a prophet, and Naaman, who was this high official in the Syrian empire, hears about the fact that God is with him, and he gets leprosy, and so he comes to Elisha, and Elisha heals him, and he ends up fearing the Lord and going back to Syria as a God-fearer. But again, what Jesus is stressing is this remarkable miracle occurs, but not for Israel, for a Gentile. These stories are part of a theme that is repeated over and over in the Old Testament. And this theme is that, yes, Israel is God's people, and God loves them, but he loves them for a purpose. They have a mission to share the love of God and show his goodness to the nations, that God cares about the whole earth, 
And over and over, what the Old Testament stresses is that inasmuch as Israel is blessed, they are blessed to be a blessing and spread that blessing to the world. Of course, God's people fail in this mission, and one of the things they do is that they try to redefine God's blessings to only be about themselves, that they want God's blessings in this selfish way, and they reject the purpose and mission that came with it. There's actually an earlier thing I skipped over in this story that also helps highlight that. When Jesus read that section from Isaiah, he stops in the middle of a sentence. Here is the ending in Isaiah. It says that he's coming to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus stops before the vengeance part. Why is that? Well, it's not because Jesus is uncomfortable with God's vengeance. He actually talks a lot in the Gospels about hell and judgment and God's wrath coming on those who are in rebellion against him and do evil in the world. Some people kind of skip over those parts of what Jesus says, but it's a frequent theme for him. So it's not that he doesn't want to talk about that. Rather, probably the reason he skips it here is because that part of the promise had been redefined by Israel. So in Isaiah, when God talks about his vengeance, he is immediately kind of speaking of the Babylonian Empire, which has Israel led out in captivity. But in the Old Testament, God's justice does not follow national lines. He blesses people outside of Israel, and his judgment often falls on the people of God. But in Jesus's day, those ideas have been redefined nationalistically. So when they read Isaiah 61, when they heard the, the year of the Lord's favor, that meant favor for us. And whenever they heard about the day of God's judgment and vengeance, they meant that's what's for all those other people out there. Jesus is challenging that. And then that explains why people respond so negatively to what he says. In verse 29, it says, And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Luke uses this parallel language. So Jesus rises up and takes the scroll and reads from it. Now the people rise up and take Jesus and drag him out of town. And, and throwing Jesus off a cliff, it says, um, just to maybe clarify your vision, there aren't like really high cliffs around Nazareth. So probably this isn't like throwing Jesus into the Grand Canyon. Instead, it seems what they're getting ready to do is stone Jesus. Stoning was this way both for some criminal punishments and often for mob justice in the ancient world that you would see it executed. And we know from other accounts that when you stone someone, you would usually go up to the top of a hill and throw them down it. And then you would hurl these big rocks at them until they were killed. And the, the reason you would do that is one, because it's easier to throw rocks down the hill, but two, because it symbolized you standing in this elevated place of judgment over this person. But here's the thing. They're taking out Jesus probably to stone him, but what were they stoning him for? It's not for claiming to be the Messiah. He, he claims that he's the fulfillment of Isaiah's promises, and they think that's great. Instead, what they're stoning him for is the fact that he dares to suggest that God is not here only to bless them. God is not here about blessing their and fixing their problems, but rather that God's, um, God's blessing is secondary to God's mission. He is about loving and blessing the nations, and that is the idea that they found intolerable and so they tried to kill him for it. And they fail, of course, in verse 30. It says, but passing through their midst, Jesus went away. 
So we might wonder if this is a miracle or what, and it depends on what you mean by miracle. Maybe this means that Jesus somehow kind of disappeared or became invisible or something. Maybe it simply means he draws himself up and the crowd falls back from him the way he does with the soldiers who are about to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he just walks right through their midst. But regardless, the point is that Jesus went away. These people lost their opportunity to know Jesus and to be ministered to by him. And Jesus never returns to Nazareth. Their selfishness costs them the Savior. So that's the story. Now let's talk about us and our hearts and lives. Where does this meet us? Well, in some sense, we probably get the answer, which is that this is meant to challenge our selfishness and especially selfishness that can wear the kind of mask of religion and Christianity. We, like these people of Nazareth, can engage with Jesus in self-serving ways and ultimately miss out on him. But, but here's what I want to do. First, I want to just talk about the reality that this is a problem that we have. <laughs> that this kind of selfishness, this hidden selfishness, is a problem that we have. And I mean both on the level of American Christianity and also on the level of all of our hearts. So I want to talk about how this is a problem that we have, and then I want to talk a little bit about how to fight it and the solution. So, so first, let's talk about self-serving Christianity, self-serving Christianity as a problem that we have. And like we said, that's true on two levels. The first bigger level is this is a huge problem for the American church. Maybe you've heard discussions of what is called the prosperity gospel the prosperity gospel, which is wildly popular in our country. This is not a fringe thing. This is mainstream, and we are exporting it around the world. And basically, here's what the prosperity gospel says. It says that in Jesus, not only do we have promises of salvation and forgiveness and resurrection, but we also have promises that earthly healing and comfort and prosperity are guaranteed to us in this age. That if we just believe hard enough, if we just do the right things, and usually if we just tithe to some specific ministry, but if we just do those things, that God's worldly blessings of earthly prosperity and healing are guaranteed. So take Paul Crouch. Paul Crouch, if you've never heard of him, is the guy who founded the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And that is a huge outlet for this kind of stuff. But he was notorious for saying things like this, for example, in a pledge drive, where he said, God spoke to me clearly and said, did I give my son Jesus on the cross expecting nothing in return? You can bring God a gift fully expecting something in return. Get to the phone. Paul Crouch was consistently talking that way and saying other stuff, like that we were all little gods. But, but, but things like that, again, that is not a fringe thing, right? <laughs> that is mainstream. And in fact, let's talk a little bit more about it because, because it's so widespread that I worry about the way this influences some of us. So what are some of the signs of, what are the things we're talking about when we talk about the prosperity gospel? What are the teachings? One, we are talking about when pastors embrace a name it, claim it idea of God's blessings. That if you just name something as true and really believe it and trust in God, that he will guaranteed give it to you. That's common in what's called the Word of Faith movement. Um, and here's an example. Kenneth Copeland, the, the wealthiest pastor in the world, but he regularly explains that by praying, while believing really hard, we can make God do whatever we want. 
And I quote, when we pray, believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. It is a key to getting results as a Christian. Another sign of the prosperity gospel, too, is when you hear people make statements about how if you give some amount of money, which they call first fruits or sowing a seed, then you will get more money back. Here's Kenneth Copeland again. Do you want a hundredfold return on your money? Give and let God multiply it back to you. No bank in the world offers this kind of return. Praise the Lord. Or here's Paula White, who is the personal pastor of our current president. Um, she regularly says things like this. She says, with obedience to this first fruits instruction, by which she means sending her ministry money, and your faith, I believe your purpose, your year, your prosperity and power will release blessing upon your entire year. For I decree you are about to inherit your promised land. 2019 is a year of deliverance and prosperity for you. In, in 2016, a few years before that, at Easter, she announced on television that God had specifically told her that if people sent in donations of $1,144, God had guaranteed to financially bless them. And three, a third sign of this prosperity gospel is that there's this softer form of it that doesn't come out and say those extreme things that we gave as the first two instances, but it does insist that if you follow Jesus, you will end up prosperous and comfortable. Here's Joel Osteen. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. And this level is trickier to spot because, yeah, it doesn't go to the extreme of like, you send me $100 and God will give you 1000 But um, our story today helps us recognize why that is still so dangerous because it is a way of taking our greed and our selfishness and putting a Christian mask on it and seeking it in Jesus. It confuses people between Jesus and earthly blessings. Which is a good reminder, let's talk for a minute about why everything we just heard from those people, why that is wrong and why it's dangerous. First of all, what is half right about this idea? Because there is a sort of half truth that these teachers latch on to. It is absolutely true that this world is broken by sin and that disease and death and poverty are all results of that brokenness. God is opposed to those things, and Jesus does come to ultimately defeat death and, and poverty and hardship and all of that. But here's what's wrong. At its most basic level, what is wrong with prosperity theology is that it moves promises whose fulfillment lies after Christ returns into this age. God is going to heal every disease, guaranteed. It's called the resurrection of the body. In the new heavens and new earth, there will not be poor people or people who are struggling. Everyone will have everything that they need. Hallelujah, that is true, but those promises are for the age to come. And then by moving those promises into this age, what those people end up doing is warping God into an idol. They warp God into an idol. Here's what I mean. Imagine that you lived in the ancient world. You would pray to these idols of these gods, to Hera, Poseidon, whoever. You worshipped these idols, but you did not worship them because you feared them or loved them. You worshipped them because you wanted stuff. You prayed to Hera because you wanted a healthy baby. You prayed to Poseidon because you wanted safety on a sea voyage. 
What you were seeking was this worldly stuff, and the gods were just a means to an end so that you could serve and pursue your appetite for that worldly stuff. And that attitude is idolatry, and it is just as much idolatry if it is the Christian God that we are worshiping when we do it. Let me say that again. If what we are seeking is worldly stuff as our ultimate aim, if that is our ultimate goal, it does not matter whether you pray to Zeus or to Jesus, you are worshiping a false god. Because ultimately it's the worldly stuff that you're worshiping, and you're treating Jesus as a means to that end. The problem with the prosperity gospel is that it encourages people to worship those idols. It encourages people to worship mammon money. These preachers build altars for people to come and bow down to the gods of comfort and health and the bottom line. And they do all of that and they put the name of Jesus on it. And that does not make a Christian. That makes them doubly damned. And I know I get angry when I think about those people. Because of course, the other reality about all of that, about that prosperity gospel, is that it destroys people. It lies to them. It robs poor people who don't have enough to pay the bills, but they send these preachers money, these preachers who fly on private jets and live in giant mansions. They're robbing the poor. It wrecks the sick. Not only do they take money from the sick people too, but then when they don't get better, they tell them it must be because they don't have enough faith. It leaves them devastated. I have seen and met people that that has happened to. So that's the prosperity gospel. I wanted to take that few minutes to talk about that because it is all over the place. And just one more thing about all of that. If that is something that you have believed or been exposed to or that you know people who are in the middle of, in the description of the video of this sermon, I'm going to share links to a couple of resources, a book and a movie. The book is called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. It's written by Kosti Hinn who, if that last name sounds familiar to you, Benny Hinn is one of the other very famous prosperity teachers. Costi was part of Benny's family, but was saved out of that false gospel to Jesus and is a pastor now. And then the, the, the movie, the documentary, is called American Gospel, Christ Alone, which is an examination of the true gospel and how it contrasts with the prosperity gospel. So you can look at those. But that said, here's the thing about talking about all of that. I think it is important to talk about, but it can also be dangerous because it can make us think that selfishness only manifests in those kinds of obvious ways. That we only have a self-serving view of Jesus if we're explicitly trying to get expensive cars from him or something. And that's not true. There is a much subtler prosperity gospel, a subtler selfish Christianity that I think infects almost all of us. Here's the question that we have to confront. Is Jesus, is knowing and following Jesus, is Jesus our goal, or is he simply a means we're trying to use to reach some other goal? Is Jesus our goal, or is he just a means we're using to try to get something else? Again, that is a question that we have to ask our hearts. It is easy to say, I'm living for Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. But when the rubber hits the road, our choices can reveal something else. We can use Jesus to serve the goal of our self-righteousness. We want to feel better than other people. We want to feel good, and therefore we claim to follow him. But really, what we're following is the goal of our own pride. We can use Jesus to serve the goal of our security. 
we feel worried about the future and worried about the state of the world and that that's a normal feeling but then we we try to make jesus just a tool to make us safe in this world when we do that we're using him to serve our fear we can use jesus to serve the goal of productivity or the goal of personal health or the goal of prosperity even without going to the extremes of naming it and claiming it and i think we can see that because whenever we don't have those things it is it is so easy for us to kind of turn against jesus to, to speak ill of him or walk away from him because he's not giving us what we really want i mean i think about that for years elizabeth has you know we've been walking through terminal cancer and and look, because we mentioned all this stuff, God can heal that, and maybe he will, but so far he hasn't, and oftentimes he doesn't. I mean, one, one of the other issues with the whole prosperity gospel movement and healing and all of that is that, I mean, being human has a 100% mortality rate. At some point, everybody gets sick and doesn't get better. And so the idea that it's somehow guaranteed to us in this age just misses the point. But here is the thing that I've reflected on in the middle of Elizabeth's cancer. Am I in this thing, in life, and marriage and family and all of that and i in this to, with the goal of serving jesus or am i trying to make jesus serve me and those other things and if elizabeth dies and i were to turn my back on god that would be tragic but it would also reveal something about where my priorities really were it would reveal that jesus was a means to an end and that something else was that goal and look i say that soberly and with a sense of fearfulness in my own heart because, because I'm seeking, and I think my heart, my heart is fixed on Christ in those things, but I recognize until you're tested, you don't really know. But I say that to say that that is true of all of our lives. The best test of whether we are ultimately seeking God is whether we are willing to love and trust him even when he challenges those other things we love, even when he takes them away. And that is exactly what happens in this story. These people claim to love God and they are interested in Jesus, but when Jesus comes and challenges their idols, when he doesn't heal them the way they want, and when he reminds them that he loves their enemies, then they turn into the people that tried to kill him. We need to make sure that isn't true of our hearts. So self-serving Christianity is a problem that we all have. And then as we close, I just want to offer one final positive thought about how we fight against it. How do we fight back against that selfishness? I think that part of the answer is what I'll call Christianity on mission. Christianity on mission. As we discussed, what Jesus is reminding his hearers of is the mission of God. It is God's love for the nations, his desire to seek and save and bless everyone, not just the insiders like his hearers. And when I talk about being on mission, I don't just mean like, international missionaries or something. What I mean is this. God's purpose is to bring salvation and life and blessing to the world. When we become Christians, that is supposed to become our purpose as well. Our goal is not supposed to seek blessing and life for ourselves, but to be agents trying to bring that blessing and life to others, even as we give up ourselves to do it. The error of the prosperity gospel and of all forms of self-serving Christianity is they, they try to make God serve us. And the best antidote to that error is to have our lives consumed with serving God. The best antidote to selfishly seeking to make God serve us is to consciously, daily, look for opportunities to pour ourselves out in service to others.
Hudson Taylor was one of the giants of the missionary movement in the 19th century. He lived in China for 51 years, ministering and spreading the gospel there. And he was this radical missionary. He rejected a lot of the compromises that other British missionaries made at his time. He dressed like the Chinese people and lived in their midst and lived humbly. He opposed Great Britain when they tried to sell opium to China and do other unjust things. He poured out his life there in China and died there and was buried there, loving that country. And here are his memorable words about that missionary work. He says, if I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? I just got to say first, just contrast that attitude with those quotes we read earlier from the prosperity teachers, right? It's not, give me a thousand dollars, Lord, give me an easy life. It's even if I had all of these blessings, I would spend all of them and have nothing poured out for China and for Christ. That was Taylor's attitude. Being on mission destroys selfishness. And again, that doesn't mean moving to a foreign country. That's just as true in our lives as well. I remember talking to an older Christian who had lived that kind of life of self-sacrificial service. He had very little money because he was very generous to those in need, and he had very few worldly possessions, and his health was not great and had been poor for years, and yet he radiated joy. And the reason, as I talked to him, that I realized it was, was because he had defined his whole life not by any of those things, but simply by his desire to serve his Savior. He had spent his life pursuing that goal, and he knew the great secret, which is that that was worth it. That there was joy and purpose in that pursuit, which none of the things on offer in this world could match. That is the secret. There are deep wells of joy and blessing in the pursuit of Jesus Christ. They're just not the blessings that the world tries to sell. They're different and far more profound. And because of that, as we pursue that kind of service with our lives, self-serving desires start to lose their power over us. We have experienced a better way. We have found deeper joy in serving God. So that is the pursuit that we are called into to repent of our selfishness, to repent of the ways that we seek to make Jesus serve us, and instead to invest ourselves in serving him. Because as we do that, our masks will be pulled back, and the selfishness in our hearts will begin to wither, and joy and purpose will begin to blossom in their place. Pray with me. God and Father, I confess and repent of the reality that even my own heart is so often seeking things other than you. I confess our idolatry. Father, I pray for the church in, in this nation, in this land. Father, we are, we are such selfish, self-absorbed people. And there are days when, when I see that mask pulled back a little and see how deep it runs that I wonder whether you can help but judge us for it. But Father, I pray that you would forgive us and that you would sanctify us, that you would chasten us, and, and tear our hearts and our eyes away from the stuff of this world, Lord. Teach us to recognize that it is passing away, and that you are the one of surpassing greatness, and, and help your church to invest its hope there. And then out of that hope, Father, I just pray that we, your church, would be agents of such service and blessing to the world. 
Rather than seeking to get what is ours, we would give so that others might be built up. That rather than seeking to protect ourselves, we might seek to share Jesus in love selflessly, recklessly. And that as we do that, Father, the world would be changed. I pray that you would work that among us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And now, friends, join me in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. 